The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It occurs to me as the children are leaving for Sunday school. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was downstairs teaching in the large group Sunday school. And about 10 minutes in, my daughter Holly came into the gymnasium and walked across and was saying something to my wife. And uh, she looked a little sheepish. And um, they actually never said anything to me until later, but she came down to tell her mother that perhaps I needed to be a little quieter as I spoke downstairs. She said, I was upstairs in church and all of a sudden I hear this voice. (laughs) It's dad. (laughs) He's teaching downstairs. So I apologize ahead of time if I yell a little and perhaps I'm a little demonstrative. In the for this morning's sermon, um, a story came to my mind <coughs> that it was uh, offered some good analogies for me. <coughs> Many of have read and or seen the movies, uh, the Tolkien, uh, Lord of the Rings, and specifically this morning I was thinking of the two towers, the middle <coughs> story, and... This, uh, this gathering together, <coughs> the good and the evil, and the neutral, if there is such a thing, um, culminating in this standoff at Helm's Deep, <coughs> and throughout the story, the forces of evil are gathering, being created. <coughs> by Saruman and others, and Theoden, King Theoden of Rohan, uh, is brought to his right mind with the help of Gandalf, and they sense that the evil is on its way, and it is coming, and it is pressing, and it is inevitable. And they have to make decisions. And they all know that the decisions they make will necessarily make a difference with what the end result is. (coughs) All of them are thinking a little differently, strategically, and for different groups of people. And they just know that something bad is happening and is going to happen. And it's just a fascinating study of how they respond to that. And the fate of Middle Earth hangs in the balance. My title this morning, my sermon title, (coughs) could be Difficulties, Struggles, Beatings, Jailing, Murderous Threats, and Death. And the obedience of Christ followers, 
the furthering of the kingdom of God. Or I could just title it, God Wins. The format's going to be a little different. Um, If you were here last time I preached, it was very formal. I read the whole thing this morning. I've got a lot fewer notes um, to to work from. But I'm really going to be giving a... What is a survey of a few stories in the book of Acts? And each of these stories has uh, similarities in that they each have a measure of of, uh, oppression or persecution or threats to the believers. The next thing they have in common is a response from God's people to what is happening to them, to what they are seeing and experiencing. (laughs) And the third thing is there is a certain uh, result, outcome, from the response of God's people. I knew that was coming. In fact, I told someone at some point someone's going to bring me some water because of this dumb cough of mine. Isn't that a German word? Dumb cough. Sorry. <laughs> so, you can imagine as you're looking at the book of Acts and, and, and coming up with that, I will, I will finish this sermon and you will say, oh, I could have thought of five or ten or twenty other things he could have included. And I appreciate that. And this is just to give you a taste, and so perhaps you will go back and read these stories, and you will see other stories as well. But this is absolutely a theme throughout Acts, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, and throughout the rest of history up until today. It really is. And so I would suggest that my uh, survey uh, led me to this point of saying, in that early church, the fate of those people... The fate of the movement of God seemed to hang in balance as God's children made decisions about how they would respond to threat and difficulty and persecution. So let's get into this. Story number one. Uh, It starts in uh, Acts chapter 5, and I'm just going to tell the stories. And because they're kind of disjointed, I'm not... I'm I'm just telling you, I'm in Acts chapter 5. If you'd like to look, that's fine. But we're going to be jumping around, so you're going to be scrambling or with your Kindle or whatever, trying to find it. But, um, you know, if you know anything about the first few chapters of Acts, you know that Jesus has ascended. He has given a charge. He has uh, promised the, the Holy Spirit would come. And, in fact, it did come, and it came mightily. And the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were speaking in tongues and people from all Jews, from all nations were there represented. They heard the gospel in their own tongue. About 3,000 people at least came to believe in Jesus that day. And the ball was rolling. Within a very short amount of time, though, obviously, the same people that were responsible for seeing that Jesus was put to death on the cross were still around in Jerusalem. And they hated the thought of any of their power being usurped by some other movement, by other people. 
And so it starts and they arrest John and Peter and they question them. Um, and, and, and John and Peter respond and they're like, wow, these men are unlearned, but listen to them talk. And they decide at that time, I, I, we hate these people even more. And they charge them to stop teaching about Jesus. And John and Peter go away. And, and of course, they, they immediately begin to preach again. The first story that I want to tell talks about the next arrest. <clears throat> the leaders, the Sadducees, the church leaders, they get together and they say, we have to stop this. We hear more and more about this. And, and, and we see more signs and wonders. And we hear more preaching about this Jesus. And didn't we stop it when we killed him? No, we didn't. We've got to stop it now. We've got to snub it out. And so they round up the apostles and they actually put him in, in prison for the night. <clears throat> The next day, they're going to go back and they're going to question them. So there's the first recorded whole-scale collection of the followers of Jesus. And they're rounded up. They're put in prison that night. An angel comes and he releases them. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie or heard of a story of a prison break. But what's the first thing that happens when those guys get out of prison? They're gone. I mean, they are out of there. And I don't know what these guys were thinking when they saw an angel open the door to their prison. <clears throat> it didn't matter because they were given explicit instructions immediately. And the angel said, now I want you to go and start preaching in the temple. Okay, that's what we'll do. So first thing in the morning, the apostles go and start preaching. Well, unbeknownst to the officials... Uh, the, this is all happening, and they go to the jail, and where, where, where are the prisoners? Well, they're not here, and the, and the, and, and the doors are locked, and, and the guards don't, didn't see anything, but they're all gone. Oh, man, how are we going to explain this? And then someone comes running up. Oh, we found them. They're just, actually, they're just right over here. And what are they doing? Well, they're preaching. Oh, man. <laughs> so they go and round them up, and they said... What are you guys doing? We arrested you. We put you in jail and we told you to stop preaching about this man, Jesus. And their first words to him are awesome. Peter steps forward and he says, I'm sorry, but we must obey God rather than men. And then the funny thing is, is that in their explanation of what they were doing, they began preaching again to these same people who had just told them to stop preaching. They immediately began telling, well, well how can we help it? Because uh, the, the very Jesus who you crucified did die and did raise again, rise again for the forgiveness of sins. And they start telling him and the Sadducees are getting so angry and it says they want to kill him. And it probably would have happened. Their lives probably would have ended that day if not for a man named Gamaliel who stepped in and said, Hey, you guys, and he drew them aside and he said, Maybe this is better that we just leave them alone. If it's not real, it's going to die. Like all the other th movements in the past where men said something was true and then we found out it wasn't and it died and then another one came along and it died. And if this, ha if this is not true, it's going to die. But what if it is true? So... 
They didn't kill them, but it says they beat them and sent them on their way with a stern warning. You cannot preach about Jesus anymore. And then I just wish they could have been there. I, so they go away, right? And they've just been beaten. And by the way, uh, a whip or a stick on the back or the head to them hurt like it would to you. This was not a pleasant thing to go through. And it says that as they all went away, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And in every and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So what's the result? What's the result of this this incredible response to threat and to beating and to jailing? And then what's the response of obedience because these men continue to preach in the in the face of danger? And 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 in going home with welts on them. Well, the result is this. In the very next verse, after this, it says, "In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number." That's awesome. At the very point at which they are rounding up Christians, they are threatening them. They are saying, if you preach about Jesus, your life, your health is in peril. Your freedom is in peril. At that very point, you would expect the opposite in the next verses. And the numbers were decreasing because people were afraid, but it's exactly the opposite. And now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, it's a miraculous thing. And it's awesome. And then six verses later, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. <clears throat> now you have to understand, this is spectacularly surprising, considering that just a very short time earlier, many of these same people were expecting to ride into Jerusalem with Jesus overthrow the Romans, and sit by the side of Jesus as he ruled. That's what they thought was going to happen. And then they saw him beaten and mocked and crucified. He died. And they saw that happen. And then they saw him again, and he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And now they are there. These same people who thought they would be sitting in power are now counting it a privilege and rejoicing to be worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. It's an awesome thing. Next story. Very shortly after. And you all know the beginning of this story. You all know this story probably. The arrest and the trial of Stephen. Stephen is a fine man. He's been appointed along with others to care for the widows and the orphans uh, in, in, in the previous chapter. And he is rounded up. He's doing signs and wonders. And he's a threat. And so the church leaders decide we're going to make an example of Stephen. And we're going to 
we're going to trump charges and we're going to make false accusations. And they put him in front of everybody. And he's sitting there and all these church people are around him, the leaders, and they're they're looking at him. And it says his face is like an angel and they charge him to give an account of these charges that are brought against him. And he (laughs) he goes on to tell these men who have spent their life learning the scriptures and he, he goes on to give them a lesson in the Old Testament. And he goes through and he's, he's step by step talking about the forefathers. And each time he's linking it to Jesus, linking it to save the need for a savior. The linking God's plan from one person to another. And then he comes up to present day and he said, and you guys sent this man, Jesus, to the cross and you killed him. And they rose up in anger. (coughs) And they took Stephen outside of the city and they threw rocks at him until he died. (coughs) But it did not stop there, you guys. The floodgates of suspicion and hate had opened up. And persecution came pouring out. And this is what it says. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. It was a terrible, terrible day in that way for the believers of Jesus. And what did they do in response? What was their response? Stephen, of course... Paid with his life. And according to the text, the apostles, most of them stayed in Jerusalem. And they, they prepared. It's coming. And they stayed there. But it says that many of the believers were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The followers of Jesus were experiencing pain suffering, persecution, and even death. Could you blame so many of them for scattering, for running away? I don't think anybody would blame them. In Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, there's a point at which Theoden is behind the walls and the the, the outer walls of Helm's Deep have been breached and the Uruk High are streaming in and these crazy evil warriors are... They want to kill everybody. And Theoden, the king, is not himself, and he is sitting there, and his shoulders are stooped, and they're trying to crash into the final gate. And Aragorn is saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he, Theoden is just sitting there, and then he says, what can man do against such reckless hate? And his statement makes sense. And many people would do that same thing, would be in that same state of mind and just give up because what can anybody do against such reckless hate? And then Aragorn steps in and he says, there is something other than despair to participate before the end comes. And he doesn't know what's going to happen in the next, but it doesn't matter to him. And he says this to Theoden. He gets his, he looks him in the eye and he says, ride out with me. Ride out and meet them. <laughs> and they did. 
Now you might say, well, how does that have to do with the scattering of the believers? How is riding out to meet them like scattering? Seems different, seems the opposite. Well, we have to read the next verses. (laughs) And that says this. Now those who scattered went about what? Went about preaching the word. They weren't running out of fear. They were running because the Spirit of God had prompted them not to stay but to go. And it was God's purpose for them to go. There were greater things going on than just the persecution that day. And we know that they were prompted by the Spirit of God because even as they are out and being scattered, they are doing the exact same thing that brought the persecution in the first place, and that is preaching Jesus to anybody who would hear them and listen. They weren't afraid. And even if they were, there was something deeper and more profoundly important in their life than their fear of death. And that important thing was Jesus. So, they scattered. And what was the result of this? (coughs) Well, Saul who had had the coats of all the people who stoned Stephen, laid at his feet, and it says he approved of the stoning of Stephen. He asked the church leaders to give him authority, first of all, to ravage the church in Jerusalem. But that was enough for him, and all of a sudden he knew. He knew people had scattered. So he goes to them and says, let me go after them, and let me take a group of people, and I'm going to go after them, and I'm going to find them, and the first place I'm going to go is Damascus. And I will find them, I will hunt them down, and they will be brought to justice. They will go to prison, and they will pay for opposing us. And so he does, he gets the letters, he goes to Damascus, and we know that on the road he meets Jesus, and Jesus appears to him. Why are you persecuting me? Who is this? It is Jesus. And I just want to say that the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus is quite possibly the most important event in human history apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. (coughs) If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would be missing half of the New Testament books. And we, (coughs) and also Christianity's early major expansion to the Gentiles. It was deeply significant and it happened as a response to the obedience of God's children to go to stay and to go. Story three. Also, dovetailing on Paul's conversion. Well, Saul at the time. He didn't become Paul until later. later. So, uh, you probably know this story. He's blind. He can't see for three days. He goes to Damascus. A vision is sent to a man named Ananias. And, and, and the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go and I want you to pray. There's a man there and he's expecting you to come and his name's Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias says, whoa, Lord, wait a second. Perhaps you don't know this man. He's been persecuting. Uh, no, no. This is my man and, and I have him and he's my chosen instrument. And I am going to use him to bring the gospel to many, many places. And he will also suffer. 
So that happens. So that ha- Ananias goes, prays for him. And, and what, what does Paul do just like you expect him to do? <laughs> he gets up and it says immediately he goes into the synagogues. Now he was, he was just a few days earlier, he was out to kill Christians. And now he can't wait to get and tell everybody how wrong he was. And that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was. He is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He died for us. Return, repent, give your life to him. And the Jews in Damascus hear him and they hate him. And it says they want to kill him. So what's the response? This, again, this immediate persecution. And Paul had to know this was coming because that's what he would have done just a few short days earlier. He would have wanted to kill people like that. And so they decide... um, I don't know why, but it says that they decide to uh, secretly get him out of Damascus and send him to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? He's like coming in and all the disciples are there and, and, and the believers and, hey, how are you guys doing? And they're like, we don't want to talk to you. And so eventually I think he wins them over. But then he starts to go out and preach again aggressively. That's the, all, that's the only way Paul knows. And he's preaching and he's teaching and he's sharing the gospel. And suddenly they hear, well, someone now wants to kill him. The Hellenists want to kill him. So what happens? In obedience to Jesus, they decide that he needs to leave Jerusalem. He goes to Caesarea and then he makes his way back home to Tarsus. What's going to happen next? Well, there's got to be a great plan. And I mean, I bet he goes to Tarsus and, and we immediately we follow him and we know his story. And the fact of the matter is we don't. For nine years, we know some of what Paul did, but a lot of the next nine years are lost. We don't know. We don't know what happened. And I'm thinking, but wait a second. He's God's instrument. Paul and the believers trusted in the Lord to show them their next steps and they knew that Paul needed to be gone and they knew that the church needed something else than Paul to be there at that time. And what does it say as soon as Paul left? It says this, And when the brothers learned this, they brought him to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. Wait a second. Saul was just converted. Isn't he the guy? And yet in God's wisdom, he leads them to send Saul to Tarsus to be mostly unheard of for the next nine years and the church grows and multiplies. Exactly the opposite probably of what men would have been thinking and women would have been thinking back then. Paul's the man. We need him. No, he needs something else. He needs time by himself with the Lord to grow, to mature. And what's the second part of this? What's the second part of this um, result? Nine years later, this beautiful church begins in Antioch, which is just around and below Tarsus. And Barnabas, who's in Jerusalem... And I love Barnabas. He's such an awesome guy. And he's sent up to Antioch. Go check that church out. We've heard great things about it. And so he goes up and he says, this is great. This is awesome. This church is, is, is legitimate. It's serving Jesus. And then Paul, I mean, Barnabas is like, but I need somebody to be with me. And who does he go get? He goes up to Tarsus and he says he goes to Tarsus to look for Paul. 
He finds Paul and he brings Paul down to Tarsus. And for the next year, they, they teach and they minister and they encourage the body in Antioch. And we cannot miss the point here, you guys. Consider the irony. The only reason that those, the church started in Antioch was because Paul started chasing all those people nine years ago. And he goes and he ends up in Tarsus and Barnabas goes to this church Goes to get Paul, and Paul ends up ministering and loving the very people he wanted to kill nine years ago. It's awesome. Who could ever orchestrate something like that? God can orchestrate something like that. (laughs) All right. (coughs) Story four. (coughs) Heading into the home stretch here. Now, this story, this is an interesting story, and it starts with King Herod. It's chapter 12 of Acts, and King Herod, it says, it doesn't give much detail, it says, he arrests and kills James, the brother of John. James' life is over. He has died a martyr as well. And King Herod, it says, he sees it pleases the people. How typical of a man in power to do something and then to look around and see if people like it. And he liked it, and people liked it, and he sees they like it. And so he says, I'm going to do more of that. In fact, I'm going to step up my game. James is one thing, and James is pretty impressive. I'm going after Peter. So he arrests Peter. He puts him in prison with the intent to kill him. <laughs> the night before he's going to kill him, though... <laughs> says an angel comes in. It's kind of funny. said he kicks, you know, he kind of kicks him in the side. Wake up. And through this whole thing, Peter's just in this stupor. And the angel has to tell him everything. Get up. Put your sandals on. Okay. Get up. Put your robe on. Okay. Well, come out this way. And it says he goes through one door and the next. And, and it says in the text that Peter actually thinks this is a vision. He doesn't even know this is really happening until he's outside. He's completely outside of the, of the prison. And he's all by himself. And the angel disappears. He's like, whoa, this is real. So he, what is his next step? What's his next act of obedience? Well, he goes. (laughs) It's a funny story, and I'm sure that you've heard it. He goes to uh, John's mother's home. He's knocking. Of course, Rhoda comes. Rhoda hears his voice. He doesn't open the door, runs back, tells everybody, hey, Peter's at the door. Yeah, no way he's at the door. You're crazy. No, no, really. Peter is standing outside right now. And the funny thing is, is that they were praying for him at that very moment. But when he shows up at the door, they don't want to believe he's actually there. So they're like, no, it must be an angel. And finally, he just keeps knocking. And they let him in. And, and they must have been talking because it says Peter tells them to be quiet. <laughs> I, I, it's just, then he tells them the story. And then now... This, this is fascinating to me. It said, he departed. He said, he said to them, tell these names and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. He left. He was only there a little bit of time and he left. And here's the thing. He is hardly ever mentioned or seen from again. And I'm thinking, this is Peter. This is when Jesus said, who do men say I am? And everyone's saying something. And he says, you are Christ. 
You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven and you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's this man. And he departs. And he senses in obedience that he needs to remove himself and he needs to go to another place. He is stepping out of the light. Much as John did when John saw Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And Peter saying, Jesus must increase. And for that to happen, I'm done. And the role he was to play is over except for penning a few books in the New Testament. It's an awesome thing. But it's exactly the opposite because for Paul to go away meant to grow and then to come back nine years later and be the man. For Peter to go away meant he was done. Obedience looks so different all the time. So what's the result? Well, two things. And I don't even need to tell this one except it's, it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's actually very sad. But it's just so Herod... Uh, you know, who's responsible for James, and he's really mad that Peter got away. And you go back, and um, Herod is, is uh, said he went somewhere else, and now he's going to appear to the people of Sidon and Tyre. And he is responsible for the food in the region, and they, they, they haven't pleased him, so he's mad. So they come before him, and it says he comes out, and he's dressed in these robes. And they, they say to him, you are like a god. And what happens to him? This man who had just killed James, the brother of John, and tried to kill Peter, the rock. It said, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And we need to understand the profoundly important meaning behind that. There is nobody who will get in God's way. And this man was accepting the glory as if he was some kind of God. And God said, I am done with you. And he struck him down. But then the very next verses. And these are some of these, these, these verses. These just few words. I'm going to count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight words. I, they just fill me with joy. The Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, another effort to thwart and to squash and to kill the movement. And in fact, the exact opposite happened. So what do we see here? We see what four results do we see here? We see these disciples accept beating rather than run away. They stay, they preach, they get beaten, and, 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 and the church increases. We see the stoning of Stephen that leads to the scattering of his people, and we see the conversion of, of Saul to Christianity. We see Paul, or Saul, 
going off to Tarsus after he was labeled as God's instrument. And in obedience, he goes for nine years. And what do we see? We see an increasing of the church and peace in the church. And then what do we see here? We see a man who's so full of himself, a powerful man in worldly terms, who tries to kill God's people and does. And he himself dies. And the word of God is multiplied. So what is our takeaway from these stories? How can we apply some of these truths to our lives? Well, I just, I just have four things, and I'll try and get through these really quickly. In fact, I wrote these down, so there's not just a lot of free talking. First thing, and I think it's key to this entirety of everything that happened in Acts. I think it's the entirety of every good thing that has happened since the end of the word all the way up till present. And it is this. The people of God say with conviction and with humbleness and with joy, we must obey God rather than men. If that is not a foundational thing in your life as a Christ follower, you will not receive blessing. But if it is, you will see all the best and good things happen. And that's what happened. And we see time after time after time, even when it looks so bad, God's people said, we will, we will please you. We will not please these people. My primary, most important thing in my life is to obey God. And that's what they did. And we saw the fruit of that over and over. And so that's what I challenge you guys to do today. To reaffirm your commitment to obey God rather than men. It doesn't matter what's happening around us. God will give us that next best understanding of obedience. We can count on that. I'll talk a little bit more about that. And Two, the reality of suffering. It is amazing to me that in the first story, after the apostles were rounded up, jailed, threatened, and beaten, the thing they went away rejoicing in was not that they were out of jail, but that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You guys, there is no biblical reason I can find that would suggest anything other than that as we live for God, we will experience suffering as well. There are many, many verses similar to these in Philippians where Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What will suffering look like for each one of us? Only God knows. And you know. You know how that's manifested itself in your life, how it is currently manifesting itself in your life. But it seems very clear in the word that faithful believers in Jesus will experience a unique kind of difficulty because of their obedience to him. In fact, I would suggest that just the act of submission to God brings about a type of suffering, the act of dying to ourself. But the beauty of this paradox is that at the very time we are dying to ourselves, we are now fully alive in Christ Jesus. We are new creations, and the suffering we now experience is because we identify with our Savior. And we are living for our Savior. And whatever pleases Him, whatever brings Him honor and glory, whatever advances His purposes, that's what we are about, no matter what. Three, obedience. (laughs) 
That's another thing I learned through this study. Obedience. What does it look like? In each of these stories, it looked different. You have folks that let out of prison and going back. You have people staying in Jerusalem and scattering. (coughs) You have Paul going from one city to another city, and then preaching, preaching, and then disappearing altogether. But then later to come back and be the leader of the movement. Then you have Peter, the exact opposite. He's in prison. He escapes. He goes to another place. How did each one of these guys know what to do next? It is undeniable that that the believers in the book of Acts expected to be guided and directed by God. What made them so sure? How can we be sure? How do we determine how to obey what God is calling us to do? I'm just going to read a few verses. In Psalm 119, your your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 25, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all the day. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you continually. Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. In James, we are told to seek God's wisdom in faith, believing that God will provide it. Multiple times in Acts, we are told the Holy Spirit kept Paul and others from speaking the gospel in certain places, from going to certain places. Why? Because they were asking him. And while they were worshiping, it says, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit came to them and they said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God is not out to confuse us, but to give us peace. We set our minds on things above. We seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We trust that God keeps His promises and we submit ourselves to Him and His purposes. When we do this, we can trust that He will give us wisdom and clarity in our decision-making through the Spirit, through His Word, and through the counsel of His people. Throughout the Old and New Testament, it is clear that God's people expected He would lead them. But the how and the why behind the leading, it didn't seem to matter that much. It didn't matter nearly as much as the fact that he was going to lead them. He was going to guide them. He was going to direct them. And they had already determined in their hearts that they were going to obey him. That's what mattered the most. And now I come to my conclusion. And thank you so kindly for sitting through this long, long teaching. So in the Lord of the Rings Two Towers, you've got all these things on going on, the forces of evil coming. Saruman is teaming up with Sauron, and he's building this army of Uruk High, and they're coming into Helm's Deep. And then you have the, the, the elves, and the elves say, no, this isn't our battle, and so they're going to go. And then all of a sudden they show up at the fight at the last minute. And then you have the Ents telling Merry and Pippin, I can't be involved in this. You know, we, 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 this isn't our thing. And then they see Isengard and they see the way that Saruman has destroyed all the trees. So they say, we're going to enter into this now. And they go and throw rocks at the tower and bring it down. And then Gandalf saying to Aragorn, and Aragorn remembers this. Hey, remember to look at the first light on the fifth day. Look that way at dawn to the east. 
And so everything is bad, and, but the good people are rallying and, and they come charging out. And then, and then everything conspires together at once and there's victory for the people of Rohan and Aragorn and the elves. Something outside of themselves was contributing to all of these moves, giving them direction to their thoughts and their emotions, bringing events together. What was it? Or perhaps the better question here is, who was it? Well, ultimately, it was J.R.R. Tolkien. It was the hand of the author who orchestrated all that you read in The Two Towers. And although this analogy isn't perfect, it is helpful for me as I consider the realities of our existence and the reasons we are here. The author and the creator of life, our powerful, all-knowing and awesome God, has decided in his love and wisdom to include us in his story, to participate with him in his work on this earth. It has always been his way to include us in his work. We all have a role to play. Some of us will stay in the same place for much of the story. And some of us will travel far and wide. Some of us will be front and center. And some of us will be behind the scenes. Some of us will grow old while playing our part. And some of us, like Stephen, will finish and go home while still young in earthly terms. And some of us will be able to rejoice far more often than others that we are counted, that we count it worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And although we will be tempted, we must never make the mistake of thinking there is anything better or greater than accepting the invitation of our Creator to join Him in this epic story, no matter what task He assigns us. And we must also never make the mistake of thinking that the outcome is in question. Stories that we have seen today show so clearly that even when it is dark, God is there. Even when evil seems to be winning the day, we know that victory has already, already been won. Satan's and man's attempts to put an end to truth and love have never worked. God has triumphed and he will triumph and he will reign on his throne forever. God will have his way. The word of God will continue to increase and multiply. God's kingdom will continue to grow. God wins. That's his part. What part will we play? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.